Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Eric Jafari, Chief Development Officer at Eden Group, the company behind the amazing Lock Hotels. Coming up on today's show, Eric intrigues us all with this statement. You know, I was brought up with what I'd call kind of extreme hospitality. Phil proves that learning can come from anywhere. How I remember learning about that was from an episode of The Simpsons. And Eric reveals the one major strategy you need for success. The reason for why I ended up where I am today was more to, you know, kind of scratching my own itch. All that and so much more as Eric talks us through his story to date, as well as some superb content on rethinking hospitality. Don't forget to give us a like and a share across your favourite social channels. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the next edition of Hospitality Meets with me, your host, Phil Street. Today, we chat to someone who's definitely not had your your typical route into hospitality, but uh, has founded some superb and very recognisable brands, including Urban Villa, uh, Union Hanover, and now finds himself as part of the founding team at uh, Lock Hotels and Eden Group, as well as being the creative driving force behind those brands. And that is also MD of, is it SACO? S-A-C-O? Seiko. That was, uh, yeah. Seiko, yeah. Yep. Uh, Seiko Property Group. Uh, welcome to the show, Eric Jafari. Thank you, Phil. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. You're very, very welcome. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I mean, listen, if someone had asked me about six months ago, hey, I, I, hey by the way, Eric, you're not going to be able to travel for four months. You're not going to be able to go to your favorite restaurants. Um or your favorite bars. You're going to have to spend most of your time working indoors. That's probably the closest thing to hell that I could have possibly imagined. And yet, um, <laughs> for one reason or another, I've, I've actually, you know, I mean, there's a lot of downside to all this, but I've, I've enjoyed it so much more than I would have anticipated uh, in ways that I just couldn't have fathomed. I, I completely agree. It, it's it, There's good days and bad days, probably. I think that's, that's the way to sum it up for me, is that sometimes I'm grateful to have the time and a bit more headspace perhaps than the normal. And then there's other days where I look at, you know, I just put my head in the headlines for a second and I, I'm petrified about what happens next, but it's um, yeah. Funny old times. I mean, it's an incredible experience that we're going through. I mean, this is one of those, you know, when, when I was growing up and you, you, you heard things, I mean, horrific things like uh, world war two or world war one, it just felt like such a, distant past is something that we just I couldn't relate to and over the course of our lifetime you know although there was a number of quite a life-defining events like like 9-11 the Iraq war a lot unless you were physically there you know it's 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 distant and yet this is this one experience there 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 there's nowhere to hide uh, from COVID, everyone on the entire planet has been impacted uh, by this, and not in a oh yeah, I mean I am I'm impacted kind of in some way, but impacted seriously. Uh, and so it's um it's, it's fascinating to see the the type of change that this has already had on humanity, on uh, our economy, on how we relate to one another, on how we consume, in our priorities. Uh, and uh, that, that, you know, I've, I've always been one of those people that believes that we overestimate the amount of change that will happen over the course of the next 10 years. And we underestimate 
uh, the amount of, or I'm sorry, we, we underestimate the amount of change that happens in, um, yeah, in, in basically 10 years and we under, uh, uh, underestimate the amount of change that happens in a year. And so in this specific set of circumstances, that entire premise has been put to question. I, I really wonder what life will look like in 24 months time and yeah. how that will impact things in five to 10 years time. No, I, I, it's, um, I have to salute you as well. We're three minutes in and you've gone deep straight away. That's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> we normally reserve that for around about the sort of 35, 40 minute mark, but, uh, but well done you, just get it straight in. Yeah, I'm not one for pleasantries, Phil, unfortunately. <laughs> I, yeah. if, you, if you speak to most people who've literally just met me, I, I prefer to really get into uh, the, uh, the meat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, I, I think the uh, the thing is, is that you, your adversity has a habit of uniting us uh, in some way. I think if you'd have said to me that there would be a a global event that could unite everybody to one common, which is that you know everybody's been affected by by this in some regard, whether it's health, economic, whatever, it's quite. It's, again, it's quite a deep point to think about the fact that something like this has actually united everybody in a moment of thought, perhaps. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, that's f- f- definitely enough of that nonsense. Um, let's <laughs> let's get let's get back on point. Um, whereabouts are you in the world today? Are you are you working from home? Are you in one of your sites? I'm actually quite fortunate. So I'm, I'm actually sitting in one of the rooms uh, at Lock and Broken Wharf, uh, which is one of our properties that opened in March of this year of all time. So three yeah. weeks before COVID. And uh, I'm overlooking uh, the Thames. So I, I've got a, a, a view of the Millennium Bridge and Tate Modern. So it's, it's spectacular. I'm really lucky. Nice. Nice. Uh, I have to say, you given that kind of rap sheet that I uh, built you up, with at the beginning and then actually before I wrote these or after we I wrote these notes we had a a chat about the fact that you're also in, were involved in the in Birch in Hertfordshire that's just opened this week uh, so the question I have for you on that is there any business in hospitality that you've not founded <laughs> that's, that's really funny yeah plenty because most hospitality is quite boring um i, <laughs> I um i my, my view on the funny thing is I, I don't come from a hospitality background um you know my father was one of the lead architects at disney and so from a very early age you know i was brought up with what i call kind of extreme hospitality um this okay. idea that you you could literally create something in the middle of nowhere and as long as uh, is it's spectacular enough people will come but but really what what I learned through that process and I, I think we spoke about this once you and I Phil uh, was that you know we, we spent so much of our lives pursuing happiness and uh, I've come to the realization that it's a less less about pursuing this idea of happiness and more about pursuing moments of joy um and and that's what I learned you know being kind of the son of father Disney I mean you know, people spent fortunes to travel from all over parts of the world to come to Orlando or California and really experience these exciting moments of joy that they'll look back on with fondness for the rest of their lives. You know, and and um, I think at a subconscious level, I've always asked myself, you know, does that really have to be, you know, do you have to fly to Disney for that? Is there a way of doing that on a, you know, in, in every city? Is there a way of doing that so that, 
instead of someone flying out to Orlando, they can go to somewhere, either go to a go to a city or somewhere within closer proximity to to have the same degree of emotion. Yeah, and, and that's a constant quest, whether it's in the city, you know, like Locke, or whether it's in the countryside, like Birch. I'm obviously not, you know, it was it was an original idea, and now fortunately, Chris, yeah, you know, I brought on Chris and Chris, and they they've taken it to a whole different level, and uh, it'll be exciting to see what comes of that as well. And I think that that's probably a bit of a talent in itself in the sense that, you know, I think it's one thing to be creative and come up with the idea, but it doesn't necessarily always translate that you're the best person, I suppose, to then take that and make it into something. Yeah, a lot of it, that's it's an interesting point. I, I um, you know, much like much like a lot of people in my position, you know, there are two different types of people who probably make it to where they where I am. I mean, one is people who perhaps go work for a large hospitality company and work with their way up the corporate ladder and have the experience below them. And it's fairly kind of a straightforward path. And for many, I would probably suggest taking that path because it's a lot less heartache and headache than the path I took. Um, <laughs> uh, mine wasn't that path. Uh, mine, I was in a completely different sector. You know, I was in you know, wealth management and, and, and real estate kind of private equity. And uh, the reason for why I ended up where I am today was more to, you know, kind of scratching my own itch. Ten years ago, I, I literally would spend, I would, I would spend every bit of earnings I made traveling the world to, to go to these hotels that were quite unique. And yet, you know, as a profession, I was investing in, you know, student housing and, you know, holiday inns and premier inns and properties that look safe on paper. But in all honesty, you know, staying in these properties never really brought me any joy. And so what I was investing in didn't coincide with what I was consuming. Yeah. And, I, and I, I remember thinking at the time, this was about 10 years ago, um, the type of properties I like consuming were, you know, lifestyle hotels or high design hotels. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if, I re- if you really look back then to, you know, and, and just moved to London from the States, there were only two lifestyle hotels here at the time. There was Hoxton and Soho House, or Shortage House. You know, in comparison to, to, to New York, which at the time had a good 40, 50 different lifestyle and design hotels. So there was a serious undersupply of kind of high design hotels. And fast forward 10 years, you know, things have changed considerably since. Yeah. But the other part that there was missing was, yeah, I, 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 the most transformative moments of my life always were came from me spending an extended period of time within a foreign land, and I had realized maybe by accident early on that the traditional hotel format wasn't suitable to encourage a uh, an extended length of stay. You know, you, you, I was fine staying in a hotel for two, three days, you know, maybe four, but much longer. It just wasn't comfortable. You know, the, the, yeah. the, the fridge wasn't big enough. You know, working off of your bed just isn't suitable. There's no, the gyms, yeah, the gym's got a few treadmills, but if you're into fitness, you've got to find, go and spend 30 pounds just to, you know, find a proper gym. I mean, there's just so many things that just didn't work for me. And so, you know, trying to find something that merged the ability to accommodate extended stay with high design, it, it didn't exist. Uh, and so I, I, I guess I kind of by accident scratched my own itch and 
kind of uh, went down this road. But I realized that the only way to deliver on this was to bring people who knew, um, who were a lot more knowledgeable in specific fields. And so I had to bring in someone who was an, uh, a specialist in construction. I had to, uh, I had to bring in someone who was, who knew how to deal with the lenders. Uh, I had to bring in someone who's very good at acquisitions, finding properties. I had, and then eventually bring in someone who's good at, uh, at the commercial element and uh, because, and, and I had to blindly rely on them because I just didn't know anything about that segment. Sure. And I hadn't been along hospitality enough to pretend like I did. Right. Um, and, and that worked out for the better. I think a lot of people are too scared of saying, I just don't understand or I don't know. And so um, because they're scared of being judged uh, but in my case, because I didn't have a background in hospitality, I, I was humble enough to go, okay, what do you think we should do? And just, all right, let's do it. Yeah. Well, I, I think the the point there about not having hospitality experience, okay, yes, you might not from a, a business perspective per se, but certainly from a consumer perspective, we're all consumers of hospitality in some form and you know what you like, right? And and what you don't like by the same token. So I guess you bring that experience and I suppose that's where the creative uh, creativity around the idea comes from in the first place. Yeah, I'm. Um, I, I, one of the challenges with with hospitality is, especially as, as it comes to hotels, is that if if you think about the the gatekeepers to brands, um, the 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 person that makes the decision on you know what what type of food offering they'll be and what the design will be, tends to be someone that's sitting in an ivory tower. And they tend to be someone who perhaps has has made it, and in their own personal lives, they'll stay at a five star hotel or a luxury hotel. And so, the moment um, they're opining on something other than a five star hotel or an experience that they personally consume, there's a disconnect. They don't yeah. really. And so, I think that's where a lot of the challenge is: is that the moment the decision maker isn't the consumer, you've got a problem. Yeah. Uh, and I, I always tell the guys, the moment that I stop becoming the primary consumer for Locke or for you know, or for any brand for that matter, I no longer have the credibility to be pining on design, on uh, music, on you know, what type of skincare line we use, what type of, you know, what type of F&B experience it, it, it should look like. And, and I think this is part of the reason for why I think the standard was so before its time was because you had someone, you know, Andre Balaz, who was the decision maker, had the autonomy to make those decisions and yet spent all this time consuming, you know, spent all this time there. Yeah. And that, that's quite a special formula. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with you. I think that sometimes there's an awful lot of spreadsheets and an awful lot of soulless decision making goes on without actually, you know, have you, how many hotels have you been to around the world where you, you go into uh, just maybe for a couple of nights stay for business or whatever and you're you're not inspired by spending any time in their restaurant because maybe the menu is just dated or uninteresting. There's just no thought or care gone into it because it's just around spreadsheet decision making. Yeah, and simplicity. I mean, here's here's the other issue with hospitality. Um, you know, I'm not going to name any names, but there's so many amazing concepts out there where I, I'll never forget that. Yeah. These concepts, which are very, very unique, that come out and they're so disruptive. And since so much um, effort goes into the very first experience uh, and so much heartache and so much headache, and they finally figured out, 
the the operators too scared of going through that effort again and trialing something new. So what they do is they take that first experience and they'll do minor adjustments thereafter, but every other hotel they end up launching thereafter is is basically a carbon copy of the very first one. Right. And the problem with that is, you know, when you go to that first one as a consumer, you're, the reason for why you're paying a premium, the reason for all the fanfare is because you're thinking in the back of your mind as a consumer, this really is unique. I love this. The moment you go to another property, let's say you go to one in, in, in Paris and it's amazing, and then you go to uh, their branch in Turkey or in Istanbul, and the moment you, you walk in there and it's literally a carbon copy of the one that you saw in Paris, you, you've been robbed of all of the joy of its unique fabric because you're thinking, well, wait a minute. I, I, uh, part of what made the Parisian one so special was because it, uh, it integrated the local fabric. It was so unique. It was so different. Uh, I was hoping that by coming to Istanbul and experiencing the version Istanbul, that it would have integrated some element of the microlocation. And so it's it's quite soul destroying as a consumer to see that. And so that that is one of the reasons. Um, and I think missions at Locke uh, is that we really go through a lot of brain damage right. to ensure that every single lock is is completely different. Um, so we, we've got um, we've got two more locks opening by here in London by the end of the year. So by the end of this year, you'll have Lehman Lock, which is an all gate. You got Lock at Broken Wharf, which is the one that I'm sitting at now, which is across from uh, the Tate Modern. You got Kingsland Lock, which will be opening in Dalston, and you got Berman's Lock, which will be opening on Bermondsey Street. The differences between the four locks would be comparable to the difference between Hoxton, A, Citizen M, and the Standard. Right. Um, and and I I really that probably that, that arguably is our greatest achievement. Because I, I, I feel I'd rather you go to the one in in Dalston and go, I, I actually don't like this, Eric. I love the one you had in, in Allgate, but I really don't like this. Then you walk into the one in Dalston and go, yeah, it's nice. It's great. But it's it's a carbon copy of the one in Lehman, just with different colors. Sure. That's uh, that's actually groundbreaking, maybe too big a word, but it's... Um... It, you're, it's a really unique and fresh way of thinking about your spaces rather than going, well, that worked there. So let's just make another one and put it there because it might not work there because you know what people are looking for in that area is completely different. And I suppose it, it comes back to the, the point you made about the, it, the moments of joy. You're seeking these unique moments of joy for your, your guests uh, to experience uh, and that's going to be unique to every individual space that you have. In addition to the guests, also for the locals. Um, right. Yep. I, I want I want our common spaces to be uh, to be the types of spaces where the locals spend all their time. And and uh, you know I wouldn't say that we are masters at this just yet, partially because you know when you go stay in a Hoxton or a Standard or a So House. They operate their own spaces. And there's pros and cons to this. They've got better quality control. The, the reason for why we don't do that is because I'd say there's two reasons. One is typically good hoteliers make for poor uh, food and beverage operators and vice versa. The second right. is, is that that is the quickest way to creating a homogenized experience across your portfolio. You're bound to. 
I mean, this is one of the reasons for why Soho House, you know, the, the food offering is so similar across the multiple Soho Houses because it's too de- difficult to try to change it. So one of the ways we, we are able to create indigenous experiences throughout our portfolio is by um, every, uh, every lock approaching a local F&B partner and basically saying, listen, almost like a, like a jumpstart to a local entrepreneur and saying, listen, we recognize that the most expensive part of launching a new restaurant is the fit out. You know, sometimes the fit out can range from anywhere from 800,000 to 3 million. We'll cover that cost. You don't, and instead of charging you a flat rent, we'll do a turnover rent with you. So we're in this together. So you got to come up with whatever amount of money needed for working capital. And, uh, and then you operate the space and it's yours. And they operate it like a, like a standalone business. And some of them are incredibly successful. Some of them not so much. Um, but it really does create that local feel. Yeah. And, uh, and so that, that, uh, yeah, that, that's something that, that has its risks. But, that's, but as a result of its risks, you also are able to kind of achieve a certain level of magic that you couldn't otherwise achieve. Yeah, I can imagine as well that actually figuring out what might work in that space in a in an an individual part of wherever you are, it's quite interesting to to sit in front of people and see what they've what they've got that might be a little bit different and might might be that thing that that sets you apart and makes the the local guys want to come in day in day out for a coffee or wherever. Yeah, yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, in Manchester, as an example. So Manchester, we've got co-working, we've got event space, we've got a CrossFit studio, we've got a, a third wave coffee shop, um, we've got a chef residency, which is currently a Peruvian concept. Uh, we've got a florist, but like a really cool uh, florist, a cocktail bar, and then there's also a um, a tattoo parlor going in, hopefully soon, knock on wood. And every operator is completely different. Uh, and it really does provide almost like this village experience where if, if you're staying at a lock, you're going downstairs, it's all the locals and you're sampling uh, almost like going to a mini kind of urban village. You're sampling different experiences all under one roof. Yeah. I, I've just realized you you were definitely brought up in the States because uh, <laughs> knock on wood is um, is what you guys say. And we say touch wood. Over oh, here. Really? <laughs> and, and you know, I was going to say the, uh, the, the weird thing about that is, is that how I remember learning about that was from an episode of The Simpsons. There we are. <laughs> it's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Anyway, nothing like me to take us off point, but there we are. Did you kind of, did you always know that you were going to start and, and kind of get involved in startups and, and uh, co-found stuff? I just, I look back to your earlier life in, in university and I did note that you were a co-founder of a of the California Polytechnic Leadership Institute. Was that the first thing that you founded? Uh, I that's a good question. I you know it's interesting. I haven't actually thought about uh, thought about this. Um, I I have always had an entrepreneurial spirit from a very early age, uh, and I, I I did you know I was always I was always willing to take risks and kind of try out you know different things. In school, in university, to put myself through university, I ended up um, selling books door to door. And uh, I, I made actually a fair bit of money doing that. 
So, uh, and they were actually really helpful books, but that, that's a conversation from another time. <laughs> and, uh, and during the fall quarter, what I would do is I would once again, take all my money and I would, instead of trying to race through university, I would take fall quarter off and I would travel the world to learn. And so part of it is kind of a, an entrepreneurial mindset. Part of it is kind of this desire to, to learn and evolve. Uh, I, I've, yeah, I've started all types of concepts and yeah, a lot of them haven't succeeded, you know, but I've learned more from my failures than I have my successes. Yeah. You know, your failures define you, whether they're friendships or relationships or, or even, you know, business uh, ventures, they, they never leave you, uh, your, your failures and, and they, you really learn a lot from some of the, some, some of those mistakes. Yeah, I I completely agree again, and and I think the it's well, factually it's impossible to get everything right, isn't it? At the end of the day, and especially when you're I suppose entering into new territory, where there's yet to be defined elements, you know that that puts the risk even higher up. So the likelihood is you are going to have failures in amongst that. But I think the the entrepreneurial spirit that exists within people like you is is probably that perception of risk versus reward is well well it's worth taking the risk where there'll be a lot of people will would probably naturally go well that's too risky i'm not going to give that a go my risk appetite has obviously declined with age um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, but then again i i think i would say on the one hand it's declined with age uh, on the other I, I, I have a far stronger understanding as to what types of risks I can take and how those will succeed. Um, and I've got a great, I've got a strong enough team to, uh, around me to, to rely upon now to go, okay, what's the debt risk? What's the you know, rev par risk? What's the, I mean, there's so many different, you know, working you know, right now with, within a platform like Brookfield, you've got so many resources to rely upon, which I never had before which make kind of risk taking so much more uh a lot easier a lot easier absolutely so what's what's coming up in the next sort of 12 months then because you guys are on a fairly rapid expansion plan if i've got that down right we are we are um so we we've got uh seven openings over the course of the next um kind of uh 15 months right um so if, if I were to, you know, not to bore you, so like I said, we've got Bermondsey, you know, Berman's Lock and Bermondsey, Dalston, the one in Dalston. We've got Zanzibar Lock, which is, opens in Dublin. Uh, it's the old, Zanzibar was one of the most successful nightclubs in Ireland for two decades running and it shut. And so we're, we're restoring it back to its former glory. Um, wow. Beckett Lock, uh, which is in North Docks, Dublin. Uh, we've got two in Munich that are opening, Wunderlock. Uh, which is in kind of uh, the kind of South Munich, and then um, and then another lock which will be opening in the center, uh, Landerstrasse, um, and then uh, Lock at Eastside Gallery, which is um, which is opening in Berlin, Tallinn next year, and right. then we've got and then in addition to that, shortly thereafter, we've got Turing Lock, which opens in Cambridge. Uh, and Lehman Annex, which is another property opening in uh, Allgate. Um, and, and some of these are larger than others. So I mean, the average lock typically is about 150 rooms, but you know, the the Wunder lock will be about 330 rooms. Beckett lock will be about 241. So some of them are fairly large, and every single lock is completely different. Different interior designers, different F&B strategy. 
so I, you know, we'll see. I'm sure you know some will do better than others, but uh, you know, I guess touch wood. We we've been very very hey. lucky today. <laughs> very but, good. I like like yeah. The, uh, yeah, very good. Uh, um, you you clearly take in what uh, what people are saying to you. <laughs> okay, so you're also involved in in other things. You you have Eden Group. Yeah, so Eden. So just to explain. So Eden is actually the 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 mother company, the employer brand. So yeah. you kind of look at it. So Eden, and then underneath Eden, you've got Locke, which is our I would say our main driver for the time being. We've got a couple of other brands. Uh, we've got a concept called the Moorgate, which is kind of a more of a smaller boutique concept, uh, which is in, in Moorgate, London. We've got the Wittenberg, which is a 113-unit uh, boutique apart hotel in Amsterdam. And then we've got our kind of corporate housing brand called Seiko. We've recently brought in uh, Stephen Hogg, who was the head of uh, Sonder UK and Ireland. So he's actually going to be responsible for uh, repositioning Seiko. So Seiko's historically been kind of uh, B2B facing, and he's going to, you know, kind of, he's responsible for repositioning Seiko into more of a consumer facing brand. Right. Uh, you know, whereas kind of Locke is very lifestyle. Seiko will be, you know, high design, but there won't be any common areas. It's just, you know, high design service departments with, you know, with, with a certain set of brand standards. You know, we, we, where a lot of this is coming from is the following. If you, uh, and you know, we, we were at the right place, right place at the right time. I mean, Airbnb raised awareness for the, for this idea that for the price of a hotel room, you can stay in an apartment. And in response to that, you know, other, you know, obviously the rise of service departments has been, you know, has been kind of uh, meteor, meteoric over the course of the last few years. But COVID has actually, in, an, in a very weird way, done a lot for us as well. Uh, and in a, in a couple of unexpected ways. Uh, one, people are a lot more sensitive to being confined to smaller spaces than they ever were in the past. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, pe- people, you know, whereas before people may not have cared about being stuck in a tiny hotel room, now, as a result of COVID, people are a little bit more hesitant to being stuck in a tiny hotel room. Um, people want a little bit more autonomy. And so the, you know, in a, an apartment with your own kitchen, with your own living space can provide that autonomy. And so, whereas, you know, right now the, the, and I can't go into the exact numbers, but the typical hotel here in London is operating at 10, 12% occupancy. We're, we're well above 50%, which is, I mean, it's hard to believe, you know, once again, this is nowhere near the occupancies that we once were, but Still far better than what we would have assumed, considering the circumstances. Yeah, uh, and I, I think one of the things that has that has kind of emerged. I was asked this question earlier, which is what what you predict over the will change over the course of the next two to year two years. And as a result of this kind of sensitivity to being confined to small spaces, we're noticing. I'm noticing two things. One is people are moving out to um, to spaces, to places that have perhaps larger, you know, a larger, you know, a larger home, perhaps with some green spaces. And so in response, you're seeing a lot of people move out, you know, because they can technically not have to come into the office every day. So people are working, spending a lot more time working remotely. Yeah. What the reality though, is that once that stuff settles, these people who are living, let's say an hour and a half away are, are 
are going to still have to come to the office once, twice a week, maybe more. And so I think what you're likely to see in that type, type of circumstance is the rise of what I call flexible living. These people who are coming back to London twice a week um, are not going to want to do the hour, three-hour commute per day, if not longer. And so these people are going to need some form of pied-à-terre when they come to London. Now, it might be a studio or one bedroom that they rent. I suspect that instead of someone committing themselves to buying something or signing a lease just to use for two days a week, they're probably going to look for some form of apartment that they can you know, tap into at will for two days a week. Mm-hmm. Something that makes them feel like they're at home, but without the liability of having to cover you know, your gas bill, water bill, TV bill, so on and so forth. I think the second thing uh, that is likely to emerge from this is, and, and so I think part of this is going to be driven by whether you've got kids or not. You know, the, 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 the families that are moving out kind of an hour and a half, these are families with kids. So they, they want a little bit more space for their family. Yeah. I think the second are people who don't have kids. I think they've woken up to the fact that they can technically work from anywhere. And if they could technically work from anywhere, the feedback I've been getting from a lot of these people is, well, why am I going to stay in London during the winter months? I'd rather work from Lisbon. I'd rather yeah. work from Barcelona. And so a lot of these people, um, if you speak to them, they want to be w- within somewhere that's within close proximity from a time zone standpoint. And also, if they've got to be back in London once a week, they can fly back to London. So they need something where you know, flights are quite frequent and quite affordable. But they can be back in London within two hours. I think these people want flexible living when they're abroad, and they want flexible living when they come back to London. Yeah. And so we, we see these people as kind of a, a potential consumer group as well. And so, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see how kind of things pan out. I mean, it, it's fascinating because the home, you know, where we used to live used to technically just be where you put your head at night. You know, people spend so little, so, so little time at home. Now, if, because of COVID, your home is now where you eat, where you sleep, where you work, uh, where you play, where you entertain others. Yeah. And so it serves so many more functions. And so, A, a I think people have now been conditioned to need their permanent home to serve those various functions. But even when they're traveling, if you're traveling for a week or two, you want your temporary accommodation to offer those functions. And most accommodation just doesn't do that. Yeah. Do you know the the interesting thing about that is that it's, it's very much a kind of, it's, it's a logical even if there's not factual information to back that up, that's a logical conclusion that you can make as to the way the world has changed in, in the last few months. And therefore, there is going to be a, a different kind of need that wasn't there before. And it sounds like your product kind of sits firmly in, in that. I totally hear you on the, we've all kind of had to live at home, work at home, do everything at home. I'd never done so much DIY than I have in the last three months just because I'm here more often than I've ever been. So you want to make the house look as pretty as possible while you're here. Yeah, I, I'd say the same should go for hotels. Uh, hoteliers need to spend time in their hotels. They need to spend time yeah. in other hotels as well, in competitors, to learn what the competitors are doing. Um, but they also need to spend enough time in their hotels to know what the consumer's going through, to be able to empathize with the consumer's needs and frustrations. Yeah, And not be blind to assuming that a certain set of 
brand standards or Excel spreadsheet that produces what numbers is enough. Yeah, absolutely. But at, equally, at, at the point about people moving out of London as well, I, I live 50 minutes out of London and we've already seen a, a massive increase in, in desire to, to be based here. Uh, because it's still very, very commutable if you need to, but it, it's it's also not a, a pokey one-bedroom bedroom apartment in Battersea. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what the uh, the number one inquired product was through COVID for homeowners? Huh. Garden? Hot tubs. <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. That's hilarious. I love hot tubs. There's a long story. On our new, um, in our new... Uh, uh, Berman's lock and people are going to ask why and that's a long story of itself but uh, uh, when you walk in as you're checking in right bef- behind the check-in desk you see this lo- kind of outdoor courtyard with um, hammocks and uh, um, a fire pit and there are three rooms there that have their own private um, outdoor kind of patios right and in one of the three rooms there's actually a hot tub sitting there uh, or a bathtub so uh, as you're checking in someone might be having a bath Great stuff. Well, you know, you're giving people uh, new and interesting experiences then. <laughs> um, I, I do believe, interesting enough, I do believe that they're on the topic of hot tubs. I, I you know, obviously that that's a, that's an interesting uh, thing. But I, I do think that COVID's going to usher in, a, a, at least on the food and beverage side, a greater appreciation and need for outdoor dining. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that's that is here to stay. I think spaces, I think there'll be, you know, there's going to be a lot of design put forth into outdoor dining and how to make the spaces more season proof, more beautiful. You know, outdoor seating and dining has typically been kind of an, an afterthought. Yeah. And I, I think there's going to be a lot of thought uh, that there's going to be an entire new kind of ex- set of experiences that'll come from this. When people were locked in, if you think about it for a very long period of time, you know, they say it takes 21 days to form a habit. Well, we for a very long period of time, the only joy that we had was when we went to the park or when we went, I guess some people went to the beach. But for a lot of us, the, the beach wasn't accessible to us. Mm. And so we, you know, you know, from a kind of a chemistry, biochemistry stand, standpoint, we, you know, our dopamine kind of serotonin receptors were at their highest when we were you know, immersed in these outdoor spaces. And so I, I think, I think the, more, the clever restaurateurs will bring the outdoor in so that when you're sitting indoor, it still feels like you're outdoor through vegetation, through natural light, through, you know, kind of creating porous barriers. But uh, I, I do think it's all about the outdoor space going forward. Yeah. I, but, and then think about the, I suppose, city centers and things like that. There's going to be a, a seismic shift in in council's approach to this well there has to be i suppose a, a seismic shift in council's approach to this but that remains to be seen i suppose yeah it's it's unfortunate i, I always say that councils are typically late to the party by the time they get involved the party's uh, over and everyone's already gone home um <laughs> but uh, i i do think it starts with you know restaurateurs hoteliers people in hospitality really putting their thinking caps on and figuring out how to make what limited outdoor spaces they have experiential, unique, uh, memorable. Uh, if someone is is going to go out of their way to come into London, because most people don't live in London anymore, you know, live in London anymore, they're going to come into London, make their way. It better be worthwhile. 
And I, I think there's going to be a lot of restaurants that, that go pop, unfortunately. But, mm-hmm. but those that do remain are going to be the ones that have figured out how to go about delivering unique experiences within the limitations that have been imposed upon them. As an example, when COVID happened, you know, we, because we're, we're, we're a hotel and an apartment, we still had a number of people who had to live here. Now, some of them were uh, you know, care workers and you know, within the medical field. And so, and, but some of them literally were, were living here for, you know, three months at a time. So we couldn't kick them out. And so we still, we, you know, although we, we closed the restaurant because we were forced to, we still wanted to make sure that those that were staying with us were able to experience a unique experience. So what we did is uh, once a week, uh, we would hold um, a chef masterclass where the guests would come downstairs, they would pick up the recipe box, go back up to the room and we would hold a zoom class with a mission start chef every week with someone, someone different. And that mission start chef would show them how to put together uh, a four or five course mission start meal. And then we'd have a mixologist come online and show them how to uh, put together a cocktail. And the guests loved it. We'd have like 20, 30 uh, or, or more guests on each call on each zoom call every week. And what was interesting about that, is that if you kind of think about it, it, it it was a memorable, unique experience in COVID. It would have been a memorable, unique experience in the best of times, let alone in COVID where you're not allowed to do anything. Yeah. But what we've realized is that, you know, we, we've kind of in this new era where, you know, if, if you take, take the Four Seasons as an example in New York, the Four Seasons, because of COVID, were forced to, they couldn't do the daily cleaning anymore. They couldn't, uh, the restaurant, they had to close the restaurant. They had to close the spa. They had to close the gym. And so in a world where you've been stripped of all of your amenities, what is it that separates a five-star hotel from a budget hotel? Yeah. Very little. And you know, the, the, there's no guarantee that there won't be further lockdowns within the near future. Mm. And so the, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of thought uh, in our in our heads, as to if another lockdown happens, how do we continue to deliver experiences within the limitations imposed upon us? How do we? We were doing Zoom classes for people to to be able to do Zoom in the rooms, uh, do uh, not Zoom yoga classes through Zoom in the rooms. You you're blurring the lines between what people used to do within our common spaces and what people do in the rooms. And really providing a format where if someone wants to have uh, a mission start meal in the room, or if someone wants to do a yoga class in the room, or a hit class in the room, they can. That's, I think, what it means to be in the hospitality business. It's not about oh, we just you know putting bums in beds. It's about ensuring that when someone pays money to stay with you, that regardless of what they're paying, it's going to be memorable, worthwhile, exciting. Uh, and experiential, yeah. Regardless of what those limitations may be, yeah. Well, the experiential thing I think is absolutely it's here and now. It was already here before COVID came along, and actually, what you've you've just kind of highlighted there in terms of bringing effectively immersive experiences into somebody's living space, whereby you know you get the opportunity to learn from a Michelin star chef how to put together this this menu and meal or, you know, a yoga class with, with, with an expert in, in that field or, or whatever it is, it's an immersive experience. And, uh, I, you know, it, 
that's what people are are craving that next experience yeah it's listen it's, it's a it's it's obviously a disruptive and upsetting time but i i um it is an exciting time as well because i i'm a firm believer in the fact that um that our, our socioeconomic circumstances are and design and fmb are shaped through trauma if if you think about if you think about kind of design today, if, if you would ask someone in 2007, hey, listen, while they were having their beef wellington, sitting in a room that had chandeliers and white cloth, hey, by the way, in 10 years time or 12 years time, uh, you're going to pay the same price to sit in what looks like granny's garage. And you're going to be eating, instead of eating filet mignon in a beef wellington, you're going to be eating um, uh, you know, kind of everything from the tail to the nose. That they would have laughed. They would have yeah. said, that, why, "Why would I do that?" But but what what people fail to understand is that if if you think about what happened in two thousand eight, as a result of the financial crisis, shortly thereafter, it became socially unacceptable to flash cash, to flaunt that you had money. But people still have this need for experience. So so what happened? Instead of people going to these flashy venues for for dinner. They ended up, you know, chefs started opening up restaurants in uh, what looked like a shed. You saw the emergence of ACE, uh, which looked like a student housing uh, unit. You saw kind of the emergence of Hoxton and So House, where it looked like grandma's furniture uh, you know, with exposed concrete and ceilings, unfinished fin- finishes. Why? Because Although the price eventually might have ended up the same, psychologically, people felt more comfortable spending money in those venues. Mm. And it became a visual manifestation of the socioeconomic times. And if you think, from my perspective, COVID is far more traumatic than, than uh, the financial crisis. Yeah. And so the design and experiential changes that will result from this and manifest themselves in 10 years' time will be fascinating. Yeah, and like I said, we, 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 we think the changes will come in a year and they might, but this is here. This will have a, a serious impact on what design and food and beverage looks like for, for a long time to come. Totally agree. Um, you're certainly from, from my research and all of these different things that you've got your head in, you, you're clearly a, a very busy man. How do you kind of escape that? What's, how do you keep yourself sane? Uh, a good question. I, I'm uh, through routine. So uh, every morning, and it's funny because I'm not, I'm not, a, I, I'm someone who used to hate routine because um, right. uh, I, I love doing new things every day. But, but uh, when it comes to routine, so I wake up, I spend time with my two boys every morning. You know, I've got a four-year-old and a one-year-old. Shortly thereafter, I'll, uh, I'll try to do about 15, 20 minutes of meditation. Um, I do, I take my supplements. I, I, I take a lot of supplements and then I will, I, I work out, you know, five days a week um, because I'm, you know, there's, there's all these, this research about how, you know, working out helps your mind. And I value my sleep. I try to get, you know, seven and a half to eight hours of sleep a night. I go through a 30 minute routine to put myself through sleep. I have to sleep every night. I, I'm quite precious about my sleep. Yeah. Uh, I track yeah, my, yeah. I, tra- I track my sleep as well. How much REM and deep sleep I get each night. So, I, I, I am really, really proactive 
when it comes to ensuring that my mental and physical wellness is is being being kind of maintained. But with that said, a, a guy who you know makes sure that they're that kind of rigid when it comes to routine is always likely to have a blowout every so often. Um, and that, <laughs> so I, I I say that and uh, my blowouts tend to be of epic proportion, which I end up regretting for the next two days. Um, so that that. That kind of gives you it's, and it's interesting because this idea of wellness, um, kind of overlaid with hedonism, uh, is very much at kind of the core of uh, the lock experience as well. You know, the, right. you're making sure that you can get your third wave coffee. We've got amazing gyms. We've got farm to table food. But when if you want a wild night out, we can accommodate that as well. Yeah. So it, you literally have scratched your own itch to um, <laughs> to create this. This experiential brand uh, that that you've got uh, going, just going back to the sleep tracking. Do you use Fitbit? No, I use I use the Aura Ring. Ah, uh, okay. O U R A. Yeah, it's I was going to uh, I was going to compare scores then because I um I'm I'm a monumentally deep sleeper. And oh I am really? A hundred percent with you about about being precious about my sleep. I don't I don't need nearly as much sleep as I used to as a as a younger man, but if I get six or seven hours now, I'm I'm happy. But it's the quality of that sleep that's massively important to me. So, uh, how much sleep do you get a night? Uh, it ranges from six and a half to seven and a half hours, probably. If I've, wow. I've had a long night. <laughs> wow. Okay. Wow. Um, but yeah, I, I, I consistently score into the nineties in my uh, my sleep quality and. Really. Uh, I told somebody about this later, and they nearly chopped my head off because <laughs> out of jealousy. Yeah, I'm not. Um, I, I'm. Uh, I have. I'm not the best sleeper. It, it takes me a very long time in the evenings to wind my brain down, which is why I've got. To, I have to work very hard to be able to turn my brain off. Right. I, I'm afraid I'm one of these people that that is looking at his emails last thing on his phone and then puts it on his bedside cabinet and then is asleep five minutes later. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, you're going to laugh. I literally, I mean, if you, my routine is insane. I take, you know, I take magnesium. I, um, I use these, these glasses that filter out blue light. I make sure I don't look at my phone. I read. I have a chili pad to, to put my, the temperature at the right temperature. And I even use a sleep induction mat to, I mean, I really go to an extreme. If not, I, I will, if not, I might be up until God knows what, what hour just, yeah, working. Got you. Also, there, I've I've just realised that I could probably turn this content premium now uh, because you just gave us your your routine points of the Eric Jafari lifestyle plan, and I, I'll I'll stick ten pounds a month on the subscription fee, and and we'll see where it takes us. The other thing I also do, I have a bullet. I eat very well. I eat very well when i'm not partaking in my uh, hedonism so i i, yeah. I eat like five times a day and I, I stay away from gluten and dairy so so on the world once again for those that know me I, like i when i'm wild i'm wild but when i'm not i i do try to take care of my uh, my body and brain i think that's balanced though isn't it i think we we all benefit from the the blowout as much as we do from from looking after ourselves uh if if nothing just for the psychological wonderment that it brings to you yeah and I guess this is one of the last things I'll leave you with, um, Phil, because I, I think we've, we've run out of time. But sure um, the the one thing I'll say is the following: they did this in ex- experiment back in the in the seventies, where they wanted to they connected these kind of 
nodes to people's brains and they wanted to monitor how intimacy was forged. And they had two focus groups. They had um, one focus group, which went to the same venue over, you know, uh, date kind of, you know, this, this, this couple that went to the same venue over eight weeks, you know, so a group of different people, couples, and they tried to kind of see, and they monitored how much intimacy was forged during this eight week period. The second focus group had only a night together. So they just met that one day. They were, were on a date and the, the couple would go for that one night. They went to eight different venues. And what was fascinating about that is that you would assume that the couple that spent eight weeks together, you know, although they went to the same venue over eight weeks, would have, would have fostered a lot more intimacy than the couple that just spent an evening together. But what they found was the exact opposite. The couple that spent an evening together, because they went to eight independent venues, the brain doesn't have the capacity to basically group those eight experiences as one is one experience. So what it does, the brain assumes that it's almost eight independent experiences. And the more independent experiences you have with the other partner, the, 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 the deeper the form of intimacy. Whereas the other couple that went to the same venue eight times, the brain basically groups those eight experiences as one memory, unless something extraordinary happens and so on and so forth. And so I I always say the same thing to the team. If we're going to have downtime together, let's go somewhere unique. Let's go somewhere new. I'm not one of those people that will go to the same pub. Now, there's there's probably, I'm sure... There's, there's probably studies that talk about the importance of ritual and so on and so forth. But at least for the team that I work with, and even for my family, I, I recognize the importance of new experiences and how that helps me forge a new bond with those around me. And, and I try to live that in my own life. I mean, much to the dismay of those around me who just want to go to the same place because it's comfortable. <laughs> um, but I, I'm... You know, the, the personal evolution that comes from experiencing something new, you know, pushing myself out of my comfort zone, you know, recognizing that I'm creating a new memory with people I may not know or maybe even with loved ones. And, um, and this kind of, uh, you know, that experiment had a, had a kind of a interesting impact on, on my approach to things, which is also why I want to ensure every lock is unique. I mean, even within locks, if you go to Whitworth Lock, the restaurant doesn't look like the cocktail bar and that doesn't look like the coffee shop. It's almost like you've been to three different venues. Right. And the psychology behind that, when you leave Locke, you almost feel like you forged these eight independent experiences because, you know, between the gym, the coffee shop, the restaurant, the bar, uh, as opposed to how a lot of people design these restaurants. They, the restaurant, the bar, the hotel, the co- all look identical because they're trying to keep things consistent. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so that that's so I, I don't go out that often, but when I do and do partake in hedonism, I want it to be a memorable evening. Uh, yep. I want it to be different. Well, please feel free to invite me along to any of them because I um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm also uh, not a creature of habit when it comes to uh, to especially when it comes to food and drink. Uh, I do I do, I'd like going to my usual pub, but equally at the same my my preference is to is to experience something new. That's great. It's a don't never lose that. It's uh, it's easy to 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 want to go to what's comfortable, but uh, yeah. Well, especially this time, I and mean, we've got to support those who you know to, to help those survive. But absolutely, 
Good man. All right. Well, thank you very, very much. If people want to get a sort of get a hold of you and chew the fat and learn a little bit about more about what you guys are doing, what's the best method for them to do that? Yeah, uh, my email address is eric.jafari at uh, edengroup.com. And my Instagram uh, handle uh, is uh, Eric Jafari. Fantastic. E-R-I-C-J-F-A-R-I. Great stuff. Eric, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I literally feel like I could have chatted to you all afternoon. There's some really amazing stuff in there. And I wish you and uh, and Locke and all of your other brands the very, very best through through this next period. Thank you. Th- thank you very much for the opportunity, Phil. No problem at all. Speak to you again soon. You got it. Bye. Cheers. Bye. And there we have it. Another great story showcasing that you can come into hospitality from pretty much any direction. And a massive thank you to Eric for sharing so much original thinking. Don't forget, we launch a brand new episode each week. So hit that subscribe button and give us a like and a share where you can. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.